Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. God, I love that music. Welcome, everybody, to another week of Heroes and Hostiles with your ever-faithful servant, Dennis Wynn and uh, his faithful friend Dorian Cook. We're glad to be here once again and uh, right quick before we get started uh, tonight I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the show here on at least for this night. Um, we have Texoma Metal Detectors and uh, they're uh, owned and operated by Mr. David Finley. David's been in the business now for seven years, and I've actually known David for a little bit longer than that. And in fact, if you ask him who taught you how to door knock, it would be me. But David, um, he's a stand-up guy, and what I like about him, he'll provide you service both before and after the sale. So give old David a call, 940-500-1996. Go to TexomaMetalDetectors.com. That's TexomaMetalDetectors.com. I can't even talk. And uh, they're running a special on the Equinox and Garrett AT Max right now. And I believe they're the only ones that send out a free shovel with their specials. Uh, this one's a mini spear or mini spearhead spade. That's what it's called. That's a mouthful. And uh, he also gives a uh, 15% military discount on the Mine Lab detectors. Financing is available. Go give David a call and uh, tell him to use the secret code word, Dennis Wynn. You won't get anything, but at least he'll know that I you heard me talk about him somewhere. So there you go. How's everything, my friend? Well, everything is fairly good now. All calmed down and peaceful after a very, very close call today. I heard you had some kind of a thing going on. What happened? Um, strange situation. You know, we have a big wood stove in, in the middle of our great room here that has the living and dining and, and uh, uh, kitchen in it all in one big room. And um, we, It's worked flawlessly for the last eight years, and uh, it's not a cheap stove. It was, it was given to us, but it is a very expensive stove, and... and um, We've kept it clean, kept the chimney clean, done all the maintenance, you know, because uh, I've, I've really been boogered by what I read about creosote fires. You should be. Yeah. You know, creosote uh, fires actually burn really hot once they start up. Yeah, I heard about 2,000 degrees. Yep. Oh, every bit of that, yeah. Well, we've uh, 
had a little trouble with smoke coming back out the door, and so I thought, okay, you know, we have a, what's called a smoke shelf. I think Rich Rich Wolford uh, uh, explained that what that's called to me. But anyway, it'll get ashes will build up right underneath the opening to the stovepipe, and you know, cut down on the uh, draft. So I I cleaned it real good, cleaned the inside of the stove. Had somebody go up on the roof and clean the pipe just two days ago, and I cleaned the stove yesterday, and uh, we you know, lit, lit a small fire, checked it out, everything looked good, uh, lit a fire this morning, boy, about 10 o'clock, there was a roaring noise, I told my wife, what is that, and then I realized it was coming from the stove, and then I saw through a little hole in the stove pipe, I saw fire, and I knew I had a chrysoed fire, Yep. and mm-hmm. uh, I got the uh, oxygen cut off to the stove, uh, but thankfully, Dennis, I, I uh, since we live out in the boonies and the fire department here is the people you call to cool the ashes. So you take- you actually have a bucket brigade. I'd almost bet on literally. But uh-huh. on the other hand, they can go down the creek and bring water up, pour a line, bring water. I'm glad you know, knowing a, a professional firefighter like me, I'm, I'm actually glad you didn't burn your house down. It would look bad on me. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know exactly how, but anyway. well, we, uh, you know, apparently out in the smoke shelf there was creosote that I, I thought I got everything cleaned out and I didn't, and it, it caught. And, and uh, well, I tell you what, that's uh, that's scary. My heart was all thumping away, and and I'm looking around the room at all my books and everything, and I'm thinking, am I going to lose everything? And uh, you know, but thankfully it uh, began to begin to die down the noise got less and less and uh, the boy put up heat out of that uh, the heat just boiled out of the, the cap on the stovepipe for over an hour oh I'm and, sure uh, yeah I got that stove it's, it's stone cold cool now and I'm going to keep it that way <laughs> well that, we, that's wisdom you know and if you can uh, creosote uh, along with coal charcoal anything that, that has a carbon base uh it can actually reignite up to about 48 hours or so after the fact. So, wow. um, you know, now if it happens again, just a word of suggestion, you can uh, throw just a little bit of water in on the fire. It expands about 1,200 degrees or so, and, and it'll expand probably a 1,000 times its volume. There you go. In- instant firefighting mastery right there, my friend. Yeah, but, in fact, uh, one of the guys in our Civil War group, you know, told me to... Uh, uh, throw a, a, a bath towel soaked with water into the uh, fire and that that's what they do up in the remote cabins in Canada and stuff that they rent out they tell the, the hunters that's yeah. what you do to have a chimney fire well you know it says, it says the steam will put out the fire does that sound good to you sure of course I've been you know through 30 years folks on a professional fire department when I started and when I retired no when I started they said, you know, in just a few years, uh, this is 1972, y'all, but uh, in a few years, you're going to drive up on a fire truck, they're going to put a big tube up onto the door or window, and they're going to pump in foam, it'll extinguish the fire, and then it'll just evaporate. And, and at the end of 30 years, when I retired in 2002, uh, somehow they still put the wet stuff on the red stuff. And it hasn't improved over that, so that's been, uh, you know. I mean, you, we still have foam now, you know. But uh, anyway, it, it's still they put wet stuff on the red stuff to extinguish fires. So there you go. Amazing, you know, isn't it? Our, Technology our, at its finest. Appalachian Country Fire Department actually has they add something to the water uh, in the tanks on the trucks 
mm-hmm. that makes the water six times wetter. That's yeah. what the fire chief told me. Yeah, it, 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 AFFF is how that started, aqueous film-forming foam. It's called a surfactant, and the cohesiveness of water is what makes it form a big drop when you put it on the table. And um, they did this in colonial days, too. They they had not the surfactant, but they put water on the table and see it make a bubble drop. But you can put uh, soap or anything that breaks the surface tension or the cohesiveness of the water, and it will uh, flow away from itself. But that's what they do, and it, and it actually does. It penetrates quite well. Now, y'all didn't know you were coming here for a firefighting lesson, but let that just be something to <laughs> no, never mind. I, I give up. Anyway, you got you got a whole laundry list of stuff to talk about tonight, don't I do. you? Something about, yeah, Ren, Ren 10 Ton or some kind of dog story. Now. Come on now. No, no, I'm not. Okay, yeah. Uh, anyway, folks, uh, Dorian has quite a bit, and without any further ado, brother, let's, why don't we get going? You talked out already? Nope, not yet. <laughs> well, we, we killed nine minutes. Normally, we do about 15 before we get you going. I want to remind everybody uh, that the new Dirt uh, March Dirt Digest is now available online, dirtdigestmagazine.com, and yours truly has two articles uh, regarding the Civil War in that article. I mean, in that issue, uh, there's a great story about an incredible uh, Tennessee Confederate regiment uh, who, uh, with its colonel and 400 men took on practically a whole Yankee army. And uh, amazingly, uh, some of them lived to tell tell about it. <laughs> and and but, uh, I've, I've already read your uh, one of the articles that you wrote, and well done, brother. I mean, it really is well done. And I'll tell you, too, that uh, I really like, you and I talked about this very briefly, but I really like um, how the magazine, the the path it's taking now. You know, it, it really, um, they, it was good before. Uh, I think it's going to be an exceptional addition to the uh, metal detecting community here um, as it progresses and matures, you know. so. Well, I think it's a noble goal because, uh, yeah. you know, it... Uh, <laughs> It's billed as the the journal of modern treasure hunting, and uh, we really need something like that. We've got magazines, and we've got treasure magazines, but uh, the journal of modern treasure hunting is uh, uh, really like that. And uh, it's interesting because a lot of uh, a lot of modern treasure hunting can be made more successful, Dennis, as you and I well know, if folks will go back to the way some of the ways it was done back fifty years ago. Oh yeah. I especially miss my wish, my witching sticks, you know. Yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, yeah, well, that, no, I'm sorry. That's kind of Stone Age technology. All right. I do no. not miss my BFO, but that's another story. It what found did say, stuff. Did you say BSO? BFO. Oh, okay. Yeah, beep, beep, beep frequently and observe or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm deep oscillating deep here. Deep frequency oscillating. Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay. Oh, All right. All right. Anyway, so now, now we've managed to blow about, let's see, 29, 15, 11, 12 minutes now. So there you go. You All ready right. to start in on your uh, subject material tonight? I'll just have to talk faster, I guess. There you we, go. We, we do have a lot to cover that I want to cover do. tonight. Uh, last uh, last time, everybody, uh, by the way, greetings to our historical militia. Uh, Hi, y'all. And, and I want to thank you guys very much 
the ones of you uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this Dennis we're getting some really really great compliments from uh, our listeners uh, they're sending me PMs personal messages on Facebook and uh, I'm just kind of in awe of some of the things that they're saying you know and I I thought who are they talking about it couldn't be me and Dennis <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's all about me. That's what my wife says all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank, thanks to all of you that have taken the time to do that because, you know, that feedback is really, really important to us because it, it really helps keep you going because, you know, hey, folks, you know, we <laughs> this is not a venture for profit. Dennis and I aren't making any money off of this, and uh, if we're going to keep doing it investing you know, uh, hours of our, uh, what's left of our limited lives now, um, we'd like to know that we're having an impact. And when you, yeah. us, when you let us know, uh, you know, that you're getting something out of what we're doing, that, that does help us to really bear down and, and keep going. We, we took a vow of poverty to do this, I think. I just sold my truck, folks. That's, that's how, that's how much I'm really trying to get by this is I just sold my truck. So there you go. Of course, I had backup right behind it, but that's another story. But anyway. Okay. All right. What's All right. You, Dennis? <laughs> <laughs> Call BR549. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. That Folks, gum I uh, wish you'd start. Will you shut up? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to have to give you your own podcast, I think. Well, at least I finally get to say something. I'll say that. <laughs> all right. So I'm that's all right. Waiting for you to have something to say. I mean, yeah, I have trouble getting words in edgewise. <clears throat> anyway, all right. Now we are now officially in, in in six seconds. We are at managing to blow fifteen minutes of this podcast in our banter. There you go. <laughs> I knew we'd do that. So carry on, my friend. Let's go. I, I, believe me, I'm trying. I'm trying. Come on. Are you done yet? <laughs> All right. I give up. Good. <laughs> All right, folks. Team Wasabi. Uh, if you, last time on Part 5 of Heroes and Hostels, we, um, I covered a little bit about uh, Rob, um, George Stockton, um, who was the founder of Flemingsburg. Kentucky, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I realized after the show that I left out some very important details. I didn't give you much history on George and how um, how the uh, how he came to settle there. So I want to go ahead and do that, and you'll find that the first four photographs in our supplemental I had in the supplementals for part five, but I want to I want to be sure that we look at these one more time. What, when I give you the additional information about how uh, Stockton Station came to be there uh, in Flemingsburg, um, it's the town, the present-day town of Flemingsburg, and, and, and we'll look at some pictures here shortly, um, is in the middle of, of Fleming County. It is the county seat, and it can proudly lay claim to the history of this most important station, Stockton Station, on the frontier, uh, and it is, and that station not only still standing, as I said last time, uh, it, it was intimately involved in the very birth of the city itself, 
Um, I'm going to draw on some of the material from my, my buddy Charles Maddox and his book, uh, Land of Whispered Sorrows, uh, for our information tonight, because it is very reliable. Charles is a fantastic researcher. Um, the the builder of this very first structure, that is Stockton Station, was George Stockton. And uh, he came to be known as a rugged individualist after his arrival on the Kentucky frontier. But he had a most interesting personal history before he got here. It seems that George Stockton was residing in Pennsylvania when he was captured by a band of raiding Iroquois Indians at the beginning of the French and Indian War. Now, most people think, you know, the Iroquois Indians were a tribe of Indians, and they weren't. They were actually uh, a confederacy. The confederacy that came about in the Civil War was not the first confederacy in this country. The Iroquois Confederacy was the first of its type, and it was a union of six tribes, mostly in the area of uh, uh, New York and in the area of Niagara Falls, off in that area. And we'll look at some maps and things shortly. But anyway, uh, he was nine years old, and his sister Isabella, uh, age not given, were taken to an Iroquois village very near to Niagara Falls, as a matter of fact. And even at that young age, he was made to run the gauntlet. Can you believe? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nine years old. And he survived probably because those Indians participating only hit him hard enough to cause some pain but not severe enough to kill or cripple him. They wanted to kind of get an indication, you might say, of, of what he was made of. Was he worthy to be adopted into the tribe? Um, his sister Isabella, like I said, whose age we don't, we don't know from the records, was sold to French traders and George Stockton was adopted into uh, the tribe. Now, I'm not sure which tribe, because there were six in the Confederacy, uh, but we'll talk about that a little more as we go along. Stockton uh, ended up staying in Detroit for six months, and that was long enough for him to be exposed again to the white man civilization way of living, and that made him yearn to go back to living as a white man. So he decided to one day return to his people. He didn't know when that would be, but he decided someday he was going to do it. And... Uh, before that happened, <clears throat> uh, George Stockton would actually live in this village with the Iroquois for 13 years. And he grew to be six foot three inches tall, and he became a warrior, an Iroquois warrior himself, and a warrior of no small reputation. 
George later told his family that when the loneliness associated with being separated from his blood kin would become hard to bear, he would sit and gaze at the Niagara Falls for hours at a time. Now, eventually, he went to Detroit on a trading expedition, and there he made friends with an English trader. Not traitor, but trader. And listening to the trader's stories of life among his own people, uh, George Stockton decided to return to his family's place in Pennsylvania, and he slipped away from the Iroquois, who regarded him as one of their own. Now, upon arriving there, he was extremely disappointed and more than a little shocked to discover that his mother had died and his father had remarried. And to make matters worse for poor George, his own father didn't recognize him as he was now grown to manhood and he refused to acknowledge George as his son. Boy, wouldn't that be a blow? Well, as it turned out, there was only one person in his family who would accept him back and stand by him through thick and thin. He was given instant acceptance by his half-brother, who was none other than John Fleming, the man for whom Flemingsburg, Kentucky, would one day be named. Now, George Stockton would later make it abundantly clear to all who would listen that he owed everything he ever had or would ever acquire to his half-brother, John. Now, it's important to cover this uh, because we're going to be talking a lot about uh, George's uh, son. And um, I think it will help you uh, when George enters the picture of our story tonight uh, regarding his son. It will help you to understand the man and what he went through by knowing this background. So it was May of 1776 when George, along with John Fleming, Sam Strode, and William McCleary, that's spelled C-L-E-A-R-Y, decided to explore a westward region, quote-unquote, talked about by the Iroquois that they called the Meadowlands. It was in Cain, or Kentucky, uh, and what they were referring to is what we now call the bluegrass region of Kentucky, the famous bluegrass region. So I actually had a little bluegrass growing here when I first moved here, but we've had so many wet years here recently that it's all died out on me. Anyway, um, these men, uh, like a number of others were starting to do, floated down the Ohio from Pittsburgh and landed at Limestone, that is where Limestone Creek flowed into the Ohio and where now stands the city of Maysville, Kentucky. They then intersected and followed the narrow dirt trail known as the Warrior's Path, which was used by the Indians for centuries during their hunting expeditions into the Kentucky lands. About a mile west of what is now downtown Flemingsburg, they came to a small ridge overlooking a beautiful little valley. Stockton was immediately impressed with this spot, and they camped by a strong and good water spring coming out of a small cave-like outcropping in the side of the hill that they had first viewed uh, this valley from. Now, if you'll go to picture number one, uh, again, I've, I have... Uh, reprinted here the uh, picture of the spring as it looks today 
and picture number two is a close-up. Now, George Stockton built his house right above this spring. And uh, if you go to picture number three, you'll see a house with a dark colored structure in the back and a white, uh, looks like a white clapboard structure in the front. The front part was built in the 18, mid 1800s. The back part is an original, is the original part of Stockton Station. And although I haven't been in the house, I'm told that part of Stockton Station is inside the White House. So basically, that is Stockton Station. And there's a close-up of it in picture number four on the uh, supplemental photos that are posted on the All Metal Mode page. Uh, and you know what? I was a little bit remiss there, Dennis. I forgot to welcome any new listeners that we have tonight. Glad to have you with us. Uh, just fasten your seatbelt because we're going for a ride. We got some, some really amazing stuff coming up here shortly. So anyway, we... Uh, uh, he built his house right on the hill. If you look at the uh, picture number three, uh, there's a big tree in the foreground to your left. And just down over that bank to the left of the tree is the, where that spring is that I showed you the pictures of. So that was where he built. Now, if you notice, you can see the hill behind the house is higher and why wouldn't you have wanted to put your house up on that hill? Because you'd have visibility for two or three miles uh, at least, and that would be good in spotting any attacking enemies and things, right? No, George was more shrewd than that. Right over top of that hill is a great big giant sinkhole, which means that below that sinkhole, is a very substantial cave system. And the water for that spring is coming out of that cave. And if I were a betting man, Dennis, I would bet the house that George had a secret uh, tunnel away down, he cut away down into that cave as a last uh, resort escape hatch. If the Indians burned his house, set on fire or something or whatever, he could escape down into that big cave system and probably had explored it enough uh, to know where he could come out of the cave system. So anyway, there are several big sinkholes visible from the highway, and uh, I should—I wish I'd snapped a picture of it, so I could have posted it. But I, you know, that's something I still all will have to do. Uh, I should have one in my files. So I think that's why the house is sitting where it is, instead of right up on top of the hill. Um, you know, and I think also he could probably pump water right up uh, through that, uh, you know, that hole uh, from the cave below. So he had water inside the ha house, and nobody had to go out to the uh, spring if they were under attack. And this station did come under attack several times. You are actually looking at an original structure that was attacked by the hostiles several times. Uh, one man was known to have killed, been killed in one of the attacks, but they never were able to take it. But there's some interesting history on the house that I haven't told you yet. Um, so in 
Stockton claimed that ridge in the valley with his beautiful, wonderful spring, and he began building a cabin on the spot the very next day. And while it wouldn't be till 18, uh, remember this was 1776 now, it would be 11 years later um, before he actually began living in the cabin that he built with his family. Now he would make many visits to this cabin, which really amazingly during those 11 years that he didn't live in it, the many hostiles who passed by there frequently on the warrior's path apparently made no attempts to destroy it while it sat empty. I suspect that this was probably because they used it for shelter from bad weather themselves. So when Stockton moved his family and a few friends there permanently in 1787, the cabin was turned into a fortified station with stockade pickets and several other cabins. Of course, those are all gone now. Uh, an archaeological investigation could turn up the sites for them, I'm sure, and, and the holes that held the pickets um, that rotted off the ground, I'm sure. Uh, history records that the now-established Stockton Station would suffer many raids, as a matter of fact, at the hands of the Shawnees, but none that were successful beyond the stealing or shooting of livestock and the occasional killing by gunshot of one of its defenders. Well, I only know of one that was killed. Um, so the original cabin, while it's still standing, is unoccupied uh, at this time. By the way, the cave also would have provided him a natural refrigerator for keeping milk cool and things like that because usually the temperature in those caves is right at 40 degrees. You know, perfect for storing meat and other perishables. Uh, let's see. The very first year of the station's existence, this is the one man I know that was killed, Zadok Williams, a good friend of Stockton's, was killed in one of the raids. Now, in the next year that was going to follow, uh, George Stockton's eldest son, Robert, was going to suffer a terrible tragedy, and we're going to be talking about it. I'm going to get into it right away here. But we can say for sure that Stockton Station was never successfully captured or destroyed, you know, it had to be rebuilt. No, it didn't happen. So it is the original structure dating back to, uh, he began to build it in 1776. Anyway, um, eventually the trouble with the Shawnees subsided and George Stockton donated the land on which the downtown area of Flemingsburg was founded. And this was done with the condition that the new town be named in honor of his half-brother, Pioneer John Fleming. Now, if you'll remember, when we covered the Battle of Battle Run, John Fleming was shot in the stomach, and uh, he was saved from being tomahawked by Michael Cassidy, who uh, pointed an empty gun at the Indian that was about to kill John Fleming and it gave Fleming time to finish loading his rifle, and he killed the Indian instead of the Indian killing him. Well, Fleming lived another 10 years uh, 
but he died from complications of that bullet wound 10 years after uh, because a bullet wound to the stomach uh, there just wasn't a lot they knew how to do then to repair and it probably got more than his stomach it probably damaged his, his, his gut um, but this makes a very good point about another period of war and that is the civil war I want to make right here you know, they, they, they will tell you that they think about 850,000 men died during the Civil War from disease and battle. And they're really wrong. The figure is probably closer to 2 million because m most of the casualties of the Civil War, uh, the men who died from their wounds, they died over the next... Uh, 30 years most of them probably in the in the next in the first 10 years after the war others in 20 years and others 30 uh, from complications from their wounds just like John Fleming did here 10 years after he'd been shot through the stomach so George Stockton himself is buried just above the spring that he loved so well I thought he was in the uh, Stockton Cemetery Pioneer Cemetery across the street that I put up a picture uh I didn't reprint it here, but it's in uh, supplemental photos on part five of Heroes and Hostiles. You want to go back and look at it. Uh, I don't think uh, George, where George Stockton is buried on his property right above the spring, and that would be somewhere between the house, and you can see a little bit of a white road in picture number three. That's a driveway going back to a barn. So it would have to be between that driveway and the edge of, of the hill where it drops off to the spring. Uh, it's the only place I can think they would have buried him. Anyway, let's see what else. Okay, so that, that's the background on George Stockton. Uh, he was in, you know, many... Uh, forays against the hostiles uh, and somebody could write a book on his life I'm sure but that'll be enough information for what, what we need to consider tonight so as the 1780s uh, continued unfolding on the Kentucky frontier um, you know the settlers troubles with the Shawnees just kept uh, kept on going and I talked about how they switched from Attacking the big settlements because they were too well defended, too many, too many rifles, too many guns could be brought against them. As the communities like Lexington and Boonesboro and these places grew in size, Harrodsburg especially. Uh, lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, two. So. The uh, question bears asking and answering why didn't the uh, Shawnees when they realized uh, I mean they knew they saw the white men coming in increasing uh, numbers and they knew it was only a matter of time until they could not defend their land so why didn't they just give up and move on west into the territory that was yet unclaimed by the United States Well, the answer lies with the fact that the Shawnees, as well as all the other Native American tribes, had lived in a culture in which warfare on one's enemies and the driving of them off their lands was deeply embedded in their psyches. The red men were not given to any more were not given to uh, any more manual labor than was absolutely necessary for survival. Most of that, including the farming, was left to the squaws. Now, you know, I'm not using the term squaw as a derogatory or demeaning term. I suppose that that's what it's going to be branded as. But that's what the, you know, the word, uh, you know, in the Indian languages, that's, 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 you know, the white man didn't call them squaws. Uh, I mean, he didn't name them, put the name on them. It was a male-dominated society, and that's what they call them. Uh, so, you know, the, the squaws got stuck with the farming. And uh, every male Native American's goals, dreams, and fantasies from a very early age pretty much involved becoming a great warrior and a a leader too uh, but a warrior at the very least and then as you know a great chief as uh, they could become uh, as far as those who had more ambitions among them now in order to understand the truth and again the truth of the Native Americans role in the history of the Kentucky frontier we've got to grasp the essence of how their many centuries old culture had shaped and molded them to say that in many ways they had become prisoners of tradition and of their genetic memories it it wouldn't be very much inaccurate if it's inaccurate at all the labors that they could most often be found pursuing when not conducting raids on their enemies whether your enemies were other red men or white, they were those involved uh, in making and becoming proficient in the use of personal weapons, the begetting of quote-unquote many fine sons, and hunting the once abundant game that now grew less and less in numbers with every passing month thanks to the white settlers. Their cultures, you know, had certain similarities to that of 
of the country of Afghanistan, where the U.S. has been waging a war, what, eight years or something like that, uh, supposedly making a massive attempt to democratize that country at a cost of many billions, I'm sure hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money, and a lot of good American lives. And you know, the sad thing is, they're not looking at history, the history of Afghanistan, and they're throwing good money after bad. Because the native peoples of Afghanistan have had a warlord system of government for literally thousands of years. And it's based entirely on which warlord has enough men and influence to control a particular part of the country. Very similar to the way that the Native Americans culture worked. And that culture in Afghanistan is so deeply embedded in their psyches, it's not possible for the U.S. Army to democratize them. As soon as our forces leave that country, just as the Russian occupiers had to do, the Afghanis will go back to their thousands of years old culture once again, whereby numerous warlords fight and kill each other in an attempt to conquer each other's territory. That was what was going on with the Native Americans before the white man got here. The focused, uh, you might say the camera turned away from, from that, uh, you know, those events and started focusing on contact with the white man instead. So now here, here's the point I want to make. The only way that we could ever succeed in democratizing Afghanistan we would have to kill or drive out most of the present inhabitants and then replace them with our own American settlers, quote-unquote. Just like what happened on the Kentucky frontier. You see the similarities? Then the surviving remnants would be forced to accept our culture and way of life if they wanted to survive just as the relatively few surviving Native Americans had to do when their land filled up with white men. Oh, they would be allowed to keep uh, certain parts of their culture, such as dress and religious rituals, some of them. Uh, Some of their dances and things were banned by the uh, U.S. government uh, military. Uh, But only those things that did not interfere with the Americans' rule and use of what had once been their land would they be allowed to keep the main way our approach to the Afghanis uh, differs from that of our approach to the Native Americans back then is we don't want their land we only want them to we only want to make them behave like we do politically or so we are told by our government uh, I'm not going to get into hidden agendas in Afghanistan but one of them could be uh, involving a very, very critical, key, very large uh, oil, crude oil pipeline uh, passing through the company country. So I'll just say that much and no more right now. Anyway, um, just as the Afghani warlords have ever viciously fought each other when there was no foreign enemy invading their country to fight, So the Native American tribes fought each other for the same reasons, power and land. History reveals, you know, that at least six and probably a lot more that we have no recorded history of, tribes 
were fought to extinction, the victims of what today would be called genocide, at the hands of stronger tribes who attacked them, destroyed them nearly to the last man, woman, and child, uh, other than what women and children they took uh, in, into their tribes for adoption, and then they took their land. The few women and children they let survive of those conquered tribes became part of the conquering tribe, and thus the conquered tribe was never seen again. This was the culture so firmly embedded in the mind of the Native Americans that the, Amer the, the white Americans came up against. And so, ironically, the Shawnees and the other tribes were facing what they had long inflicted on others of their own people. They were Now they were facing, the strongest tribes were facing an enemy that was even stronger than they were. The enemy was vastly superior in numbers and weapons, and it was now killing them in ever greater numbers. Uh, and it killed them in warfare, it killed them in destroying their crops, attacking their villages, or infecting them with smallpox and the other white man's diseases of which they had no immunity in order to take their land. So the ultimatum that the Native Americans were being given by the white men amounted to them taking one of two options. No, option number one, deny your culture based on warfare and conquering your enemies and live like the poor white men after you sell us your lands for a pittance, or option two, sell us your lands for a pittance and then leave them and go elsewhere, go somewhere else until we eventually come and take that land by force also. Now again, due to this deeply embedded culture based on warfare, the Native Americans were horrified at the thought of living like squaws. The, the male Native Americans and having to survive by farming raising livestock or doing other types of manual labor for the low wages they would be paid by the white man so they refused options number one and options number two and they chose option number three which was to keep fighting the white man and try to hang on to as much of their land for as long as they could now they would throw away their one great and last chance of success in their war against a white man when the disunity and bickering among the various tribes could not be put aside so they could unite solidly behind their greatest chief Tecumseh. We've already been through his story in series one. Uh, his goal of course was uniting all the Native American tribes into one great army that would have could have swept the white man from all Indian lands on the frontier and had he been able to achieve that goal uh, it very very probably would have worked at least initially and then the Americans would have had to raise even bigger armies uh, and counterattack. but it probably would have driven at least temporarily uh, the white men back into the east let's see But see, part uh, again, this is part of that deeply ingrained culture I've been talking about uh, of the various tribes. Part of that culture had been to mistrust 
and to hate various of other tribes for so long that it was just like a very bad habit. They couldn't break it. Even the mighty Iroquois Confederacy with its six strong allied tribes was ultimately, oh, excuse me, ultimately not able to hold together in unity against the onslaught of the white settlers. Now, um, I want to catch up on photos here. Let's go to photo number five. This is a picture of the main dragon, Flemingsburg, going up the hill to the old courthouse. You can see in the distance, taken in 1950. Boy, look at those cars. And in picture number six, this is almost the same shot, leading going up the hill a little closer. Uh, and you can see that the courthouse got quite a ba uh, makeover. Uh, and it's not even the main courthouse. If you look to the left, about the center of the picture, to the left of the courthouse, you will see a silver dome. Uh, that's the dome of the new courthouse called the, they call it a justice center. A justice center. So I don't know how much justice they actually hand out there, but that's what it's called. Many of the buildings on this street uh, date back to the mid-1800s, uh, some even earlier. Right at the top of the hill, if you look at the uh, picture number six, there's a courthouse, and you see four white windows to, the, to your left. And there's a little bit of a red roof sticking up just to the left of that section of the courthouse. It's in front of the courthouse. And then there's another red brick building uh, you can see in front of it. That first little bit of red roof you see is the oldest hotel in this whole part of Kentucky. I think it dates back to 1803. If you'll go to uh, slide number or photo number seven, you will see uh, the historical marker that stands in front of that hotel. That's part of that old hotel right behind it, and it's right up by the courthouse that you saw in the picture. And it is a historical marker saying that James Andrews, uh, the Union soldier uh, who, with a crew of men, uh, infiltrated the South, captured a locomotive called the General, and was responsible for the what became known as the Great Locomotive Chase. Uh, eventually, his men, he didn't make it to safety with the locomotive. Uh, he and his men were caught, and he was hung in Georgia. But he's from Flemingsburg, and there's the historical marker uh, to him. And that's the real general, uh, that picture on the right. That's the restored general, the very engine that was involved in the great locomotive chase. See what it looked like. Now, right quick before we get back into uh, history here, look at uh, slide number nine, eight, excuse me. This is... Uh, uh, shows the counties of Kentucky. You can see in red is Fleming County. And uh, you can see that uh, uh, I put in a, just a little bit of nomenclature there. I showed you where Cincinnati is. I showed you where Maysville is. That was where Lime, you know, originally called Limestone, as we just uh, covered. And uh, the yellow dot would be Flemingsburg in, in that county. <clears throat> And actually, just to the right of the arrowhead on that yellow arrow, uh, that's about where I live. That's that's Lewis County. And that black border, Kentucky line, uh, is the Ohio River. It goes all the way down. And what you see goes up and back down. 
It forms the upper border of, of Kentucky. Now, if you'll go to slide number nine, this will show you, uh, I want to show you how old the I I Iroquois Confederacy was. It was originally called the Iroquois League, and it dates back to 1500. And here you see a map. Uh, you can see Lake Ontario, Lake Champlain, the Hudson River, and that'll give you a really good um, idea of where the six tribes were and who they were. I'm sorry, uh, six. Originally there were five, and later on there was another tribe added. Uh, it was first called Iroquois. Le Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As I said, and later the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, if you go to slide number or photo number 10, this shows you uh, what the Iroquois six uh, they called it the Six Nations uh, what it, it the area comprised in 1720 and that's basically uh, New York showing you uh, that they controlled most of New York State there was the Seneca the Cayuga, the Onondaga the Tuscarora, the Oneida or Oneida and the Mohawks that formed the Iroquois Confederacy Okay, so we're talking about, you know, this warrior culture. And in uh, picture number 11, it depicts uh, what the Indians did. They, st they started just attacking the smaller outlying stations, uh, and they tried to inflict casualties, and they would kill livestock, and they tried to steal horses from them. But they didn't usually, now from this period of time on, they did not usually... Uh, they're, well, they weren't usually successful in the capture and destruction of those stations. Now, let's go back to the history here. So the Shawnees modified their attacks, and they're, they're attacking the isolated people, isolated cabins, and that kind of leads, uh, segues into uh, our next story, The Tragedy of Robert Stockton and the Desperate Escape of Beecham Rhodes. Beecham Rhodes. Um, I think there's an interesting picture here, picture number 12. It shows some very authentic-looking Shawnee warriors. Uh, while it is a painting, I, I think it's very impressive. Uh, 
it shows a new station being built by a bunch of uh, uh, pioneers, settlers, and you can see the guy on horseback with his rifle on guard. Uh, and they found to their, the Shawnees found to their dismay that even these small stations were more alert and better skilled in defending themselves. Um, they had been taught how to survive by men like Simon Kenton and Daniel Boone and so on. And the um, Shawnees and the other tribes, they, well, they, they realized that they were suffering more casualties on these raids than they ever had before. Now, let's get into the story of uh, Robert Stockton. Uh, hang on just a moment. See, the Indians were trying to hang on to a culture. They were trying to hang on, uh, the, the, the Native Americans were trying to hang on to their culture of warfare and their way of life for as long as possible. And it was kind of like some of those old movies, you know, where we've all seen where a junior officer says to his commander, Sir, we cannot possibly hold against the enemy much longer. Their numbers are just too great. Whereupon the officer replies something like, I know that, Lieutenant, but we can make them pay dearly for every inch of this ground we are defending. Well, that actually sums up uh, the philosophy, the attitude of the hostiles at this period of, of our history. So, you know, we're, we're actually experiencing something that the Shawnees did uh, as they they knew they were helpless to stop the changes that were coming and they I mean they had to watch all these boats come down the river they had to watch the new settlers arrive they had to watch the forest being cut they had to watch you know the uh, um, oh well say I won't say watch they had to experience the fact that it was getting harder and harder to find game to kill to feed their families and so they would have had a certain uh, sense of helplessness. And many of us, some of us I know listening to this podcast tonight, have that same feeling of helplessness as we have watched uh, this country's leaders over the past 20 years take us deeper and deeper into astronomical debt that I think we all know deep down will sooner or later completely collapse our economy because everybody has to pay their debts individuals all the way up to the highest government and all we're doing is running up a bigger and bigger national debt and you don't hear anybody you do not hear anyone talking about any kind of a plan or an urgency to uh, slow down or stop the national debt, to quit spending beyond our means, and to pay off what we owe, which has now become almost impossible. It's so great. You don't hear anybody talking about it. <clears throat> 
So, you know, it's like uh, Dennis can appreciate that as a fireman. It's like, imagine, uh, you know, your kid comes down the stairs and says, Dad, there's a fire in the bedroom. And, and you say, well, you know, this is a great movie on TV. Just go up there and close the door. We'll deal with it later. <laughs> that's that's not the way to deal with it, see. <clears throat> By the time you deal with it later, it's out of control. So, Dennis agrees, this... by the way. Pardon? I said Dennis agrees, by the way. Okay. Stupid kids. Uh, anyway. Well, we, we you know, so I, I think we know. Think about how you feel. Don't you feel a little bit helpless about being able to stop things that, that to those of us that still have a little sense left appear to be insane uh, decisions uh, and and courses of action that are leading us deeper and deeper into trouble as a country. <coughs> well, now you know how the Shawnees felt. And the problem is, see, like them, we have taken no united action to put a stop to it. And I'm not talking about, you know, overthrowing the government or raising a, our own army or anything. I'm talking about uh, just standing up, you know, and, 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 and saying no and boycotting and saying no, you know, we, we will not go along with this decision. We've forgotten that our senators and congressmen were elected to, to represent our, our desires, our concerns, not theirs, not their private agendas. They've forgotten that they were, they're there to represent us. And we let them get away with it. So we deserve what we're getting from them because we haven't put a stop to it. Now, you wonder if we're going to end up reenacting or acting out another version of the same thing that happened to the Shawnees. Will some stronger nation someday invade us and take our land? If you look at all the empires and great nations in history, they all fell. They were all invaded. They, they, they all had their land taken over by somebody more powerful. All right. So, you know, all of it's going to come down to the, that old saying, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And we are in the process of repeating some very, very hard lessons. Okay, let's get into our story now. It was February the 14th, 1789, when a 25-year-old named Beecham Rhodes arrived at Stockton Station with its fortified stockade. Um, yeah, okay. And this uh, this little station was kind of affectionately called by its founder, George Stockton, Mount Pleasant. Now, Beecham was a hunter and a trapper, and he intended to get his share of both the Kentucky game and the animal hides with their thick winter fur of premium quality uh, that would sell and bring top price 
or that he could trade to the French boat traders who were now making regular stops at Limestone. Limestone Landing, they called it now, which would be Maysville shortly. There, one could could uh, trade uh, them hides and the meat of buffalo, deer, elk, and bear, and the rich pelts of the large beavers that have in the area. And by the way, those beavers are still here. They did not trap them all out. Uh, we've got them damming up the creek uh, above us, about uh, less than a quarter mile right now, in fact. So. Uh, they were trapped out here a, a year or two ago, and they were already back, and, and they've already uh, rebuilt the dam that was blown up by dynamite. So they're persistent little critters. Let's see. Okay, so those things could be traded for such items as coffee, sugar, tea, and much-needed commodities of gunpowder and lead for their rifles. And any extra hides could be sold for hard money. So it's recorded that George Stockton was away at Boonesboro at the time that Beecham Rhodes arrived at the station. Now, it was only natural that uh, Stockton's eldest son, Robert, who was now 17, would want to escape the tedium of the winter routine at the station. And so he quickly jumped at the chance to accompany Rhodes on one of his uh, hide and meat gathering expeditions in the surrounding wilderness. And that was a very, very faithful decision as it's going to turn out. The settlers considered the chances of encountering hostile raiding Shawnees uh, at this time of hard winter as quote-unquote minimal. Uh, believing that the hostiles would tend to hunker down their villages across the Ohio River for the winter, especially during the times of intense cold, uh, and then wait for the warm weather of spring that made travel and camping so much easier. Uh, I do note here that minimal, quote-unquote, risk of danger can be a very far cry from, quote-unquote, no such risk at all. So with high hopes and the heady thrill of an adventure in the making, young 17-year-old Robert Stockton set out with his newfound friend, Beecham Rhodes, <clears throat> and two of his father's best hunting dogs. And from the area we now call, oh, excuse me, they, uh, from the area that we now call Flemingsburg, the town, they appear to have traveled southeast, probably generally along today's Route 32 that runs between Flemingsburg and Moorhead, Kentucky. And they traveled until they intersected Fox Creek at present-day Plumber's Mill. Then, turning north, the two men proceeded up one of Fox Creek's tributaries, that had no name at that time until they found a suitable place to establish their hunting camp. Okay, things are going well so far. So we know from uh, the book Land of Whisper Sorrows that they had a prosperous first day finding and killing a big black bear 
that while successful, it took a lot of tiring effort by both men and the two dogs. But what they did not know was that two of the more hardy Shawnee warriors were out and about in that very area. In spite of it being winter, and they had come upon Roberts and Beecham's trail. They followed it back to the two frontiersmen's campsite, and once they had scouted it out, they decided to come back and attack the white men after it got dark. The advantage in doing so would clearly be theirs. Look at picture number 13 in our supplemental photos, and this depicts the two Indians preparing to attack the two hunters. So they returned to their camp from the day's hunting really tired, right before nightfall. And after they ate dinner, Robert and Beecham still expecting no trouble. They built up the fire, and then they crawled under their blankets with their flintlocks loaded and near at hand and were soon fast asleep. Now, if that had been Simon Kenton, he would have made a small pit in front of him. He would have built a small fire out of twigs. He would have sat in front of the fire, cross-legged, and pulled a blanket over his head and around, leaving just enough of an opening for the smoke to escape, and he would have slept in that position and stayed warm. And there would have been no fire to give away uh, or draw any attention to him give away his position or draw attention to him. But the guys didn't do this. They made an assumption. It's too cold. We're safe. We can have a big fire. Well, you know, I've talked previously about uh, lessons come hard, came hard on the frontier, and a lot of times you did not get a second chance to make the same mistake. And this was going to be one of those times. So, the two dogs, which might have been the saving grace, were fast asleep because, quite frankly, the two hunters wore them out. And so they didn't have the normal alertness that they would have had towards small sounds made by the approaching warriors. The Shawnees got up close to the fire and they approached from downwind so the dogs would not detect their scent and it worked. The sleeping canines gave no indication of detecting the hostile's presence. At that range, the <coughs> The warriors could hardly be expected to miss their targets when they fired, even if they happened not to be great shots. Suddenly, the crash of the two muskets and poor young Robert Stockton received a mortal wound. 
he managed to get to his feet and grab his musket before realizing that he was dead. He never got a shot off, but he fell lifeless to the ground, and for Robert Stockton, life was over. Now, Beecham Rhodes, on the other hand, was hit twice, was hit by two musket balls from the other Shawnee's gun due to the fact that the Shawnee had uh, double-loaded it. And both balls struck Rhodes in the upper right leg near the groin. The Shawnee, no doubt, had loaded it deliberately with two to cause the most damage possible to his target at such close range. Now, Beecham Rhodes' wounds were extremely painful, and, and they were serious <coughs> because those musket balls were big. But they weren't fatal. Uh, they'd missed the femoral artery and they'd not broken the bone in his leg. But they, the shock had paralyzed the muscles and the leg was no good to him. But he managed somehow to get up and crash into the underbrush out of the fire's light where he then collapsed. Now the dogs were now fully alerted to the danger and they attacked the Indians at the first shot with such viciousness that the two could scarcely grab their horses and flee before the dogs ripped them apart. <coughs> this was according to the testimony of Beecham Rhodes later. Again, you know, uh, dogs like people, you know, have adrenaline, and once that adrenaline had hit their systems, they forgot they were tired, they forgot anything but doing their job, which was to protect their masters in a situation like that. The Indians fled so fast, they didn't even attempt to procure the two white men's valuable rifles, and they did not get to take Robert Stockton's scalp, and they did not pursue the wounded Beecham. The hostiles fled north towards the Ohio River with one of the dogs still pursuing them. The other returned to his master's body. The dog that chased the Indians towards the Ohio River was never seen or heard from again. Uh, probably was killed by the Shawnees. Meanwhile, Beecham Rhodes stopped the bleeding from his wounds at the best he could by wrapping you know, a makeshift bandage around him. And when daylight came, he realized that although his right leg was pretty much useless, no bones were broken, so he crawled back to the camp to try to get his musket. But he found one of the dogs lying on it while guarding the body of Robert Stockton, one of the two dogs. Now, he had no idea but this dog was actually going to save his life. Not that the dog was focused on doing that, but the fact that the dog was laying on his musket would actually save his life. Let's, let's go on and you'll see how that occurred. Remember, 
the stories entail the desperate escape of Beecham Rhodes. So we've seen the tragedy of Robert Stockton, but his poor dead Robert Stockton. And Beecham couldn't get his rifle because he was not from Stockton Station and was largely unknown to the dog, and it would not let the man anywhere near the slain body of its beloved master or the two nearby rifles. Now, up to now, all we know, this, this creature is called the dog. I'm going to give you a name for the dog of Jonathan, and I'll tell you how he got that name at the end of the story. At this point, the situation was looking rather desperate for the survival of Rhodes. He was badly wounded, no food, no way to defend himself, unable to walk, and 15 miles from home. But incredibly, this wounded frontiersman managed to literally crawl 14 of those 15 miles in the next seven days with no food before completely giving out. Is that not incredible? He wanted to live, didn't he? But finally, the body said no more. And what energy, little energy he had left, just left him when he came to the banks of rain-swollen Fleming Creek. <coughs> Excuse me. Thoughts of, had all of his suffering and desperate effort to survive and get back to tell the news of young Robert's death come to no avail at the banks of this flooded creek? The man could hardly believe how cruel fate had been to him after all he endured. Yeah, life is like that sometimes. He found that his will to live was just draining out of him like so much water out of a bowl, poured out of a bowl. It was just failing right along with his strength. And he had never known such despair in his entire life up till then. So he couldn't attempt a crossing of the flooded creek. And I understand that having a big creek about the same size as Fleming Creek. And it was flooding just two nights ago. Uh, in fact, the whole state of Kentucky uh, had historic flooding, they say, and the whole state has been declared, uh, the governor's declared a state of emergency. Uh, many roads are still closed down. Uh, our creek only came up about two or three feet. But even then, it's moving so fast that if you were to try to cross it and you couldn't walk, you'd just be swept away if your energy was gone, you see. So I can understand how he thought this is the end. So with the last of his strength, he dragged himself into the middle of a nearby path that followed the creek, and he laid down to die. And he would hope that at least someone would find his body before the wolves got to it. 
and he was almost dead when he was found by Samuel Reed, who was a resident of Stockton Station, who had been out hunting. Was it chance? Was it divine providence? Did somebody upstairs say, that man has suffered enough? Well, Reed was apparently a much smaller man, but he realized that time was critical if there was to be any chance at all of saving Rhodes' life. So he laid down his rifle, which is hard for a, a pioneer frontiersman to do. He just laid down his rifle, probably off the trail, out of sight, hoping to come back for it. He picked up a, the wounded Beecham, and he plunged into Fleming Creek. And somehow exhibiting the true grit that so often was the trademark of the Kentucky frontiersman, Reed made it across without drowning either one of them. A truly heroic act. He then put the larger roads on his back, and I know none of you have ever heard of this man, have you? Well, you just met another Kentucky frontier hero. Samuel Reed. So Reed put the larger man, he wasn't done yet, he put Rhodes, who weighed more than he did, on his back and without stopping, made it all the way back to Stockton Station where Beecham Rhodes received immediate and life-saving attention from those who were most skilled in treating the injuries there, and probably they were the women. So... It is known that Beecham Rhodes remained conscious enough, long enough, to tell those treating him what had happened to Robert Stockton. You know, I said that the dog saved uh, Beecham Rhodes' life. Here's how he did it. Because Rhodes could not get his rifle away from the dog, he did not have that extra weight of 8 to 10 pounds of gun plus that of the shot pouch and powder horn. And if he had had that, it would have drained more of his energy over those seven days and he would not have made it to, where, to the point where he was rescued. He would have died in the woods if he'd been able to get his rifle because he did not counter any hostiles or have any need for it at all. And you know, it's amazing how often little details like that can determine the outcome of big events. So George Stockton had by this time returned from Boonesboro and he was hit with a state of shock and disbelief as he learned about the death of his son and he quickly led a group of armed and mounted men from the station back to where Robert had been killed as fast as they could travel hope seems to spring eternal in the human heart and Stockton was hoping and praying all the way that somehow his son was not dead but rather just wounded and would be found alive <coughs> When they got to the campsite, they found the dog still lying across Robert's lifeless body with the ground tore up all around 
from his struggles to keep the wolves away from his master. The dog has succeeded, but at the cost of many wounds to his own body. He was a mess. He was bloody, but he was alive. He was so weak from his wounds, he could not even stand. And even though he was in that condition, they still had their hands full recovering Robert Stockton's body. You talk about a faithful canine. Young Robert was given the best burial they could provide, and the group started the return journey home with George Stockton carrying the badly wounded dog across his saddle and both of them began to mourn now before I go on I forgot to mention uh, picture number 14 is a depiction of of uh, Robert Stockton and his dog after Robert was killed uh, picture number 15 gives you a historical marker in the area and picture number 16 uh, is an actual view of Stockton Creek in the winter uh, which is this this part of it's very near the place where young Robert was killed and buried so it's recorded that the men who accompanied the elder Stockton were at a loss for words on how to comfort him in his grievous loss so they hung back and they gave him what privacy they could on the journey home. The big sobbing frontiersman rode on, gently stroking the back of the poor bloody dog and accompanied by the dog's whimpering and occasional wailing. Not so much from its pain, but from the deep grief it shared with George over losing his son. In the testimony years later of George's brother, Robert Stockwell, uh, whom his, he had named his son after his brother, it was stated that after his son was killed, that, quote, he made them pay dearly for it. George Stockton, however, surely over the course of time discovered the great truth that no amount of revenge fills the empty spot in one's heart left by the tragic loss of a murdered loved one. Uh, we've had an incident of something like that in our family. Um, my wife's only child, my stepson, died at 37. And in a manner of speaking, he was murdered by uh, a man bent on fulfilling his own lusts. It leaves an empty hole that you can't fill. Although Robert Stockton's The Dog had failed to warn his master of impending danger due to his exhaustion, 
which Beecham Rhodes verified to George Stockton. Once alerted, he fought viciously to protect his master and willingly put his life in harm's way to prevent any further injury to his body. Once help arrived and he realized young Robert Stockton was gone for good, the dog clearly began mourning his loss more than focusing on his extreme injuries. Now, I am an author of nonfiction history, and I don't have the option of changing the facts of history. I can't rewrite this tragedy so both young Robert and the dog have a happy ending. But I do have it within my very limited power and influence to make a little history in regards to my comments about past events. And I'm going to use that power now to add to this dog hero story. I am not content to let this heroic canine go down in history as merely the dog because history did not get around to recording his name. In the Bible, David's closest friend was the firstborn son of his greatest enemy, King Saul. That son's name was Jonathan. Jonathan knew he was next in line to be king of Israel, but he also knew that God had appointed David to be the next king instead of himself. With wisdom beyond his years, and a loyalty to his best friend David that was extraordinary, Jonathan realized that though he was more than willing to abdicate his right to be king, the people of Israel would not accept that. So as long as Jonathan was alive, he knew David would not be able to establish his rule over Israel. Jonathan therefore made the supreme sacrifice by entering into a battle with Israel's enemies that he knew in his heart he would not survive. So the name Jonathan is remembered by Christians all over the world as symbolizing a friendship faithful unto death. And so I therefore honor the dog that gave his all to protect Robert Stockton from all of his master's enemies by naming him posthumously Jonathan. And I hope that every one of you will join with me in according Jonathan pioneer dog hero status in your heart. Up on the mountain above my house is our pet cemetery in a secluded area of the woods where nobody will disturb it. And there lie the remains of several of our departed furry friends. And I set up a natural stone marker to honor Jonathan's memory. And you can call it silly or sentimental if you will, or you can call it downright crazy. But I've always believed that outstanding behavior by man or animal should be honored and remembered. It's a part of what makes us Americans and a part of what helped make our nation the greatest on earth. And so now you know the story of Jonathan, the pioneer hero dog. But before we conclude it completely... Let me give you one of the few pieces of good news I can, share, I can share with you about the Robert Stockton tragedy. And that good news is that Jonathan, the hero dog, despite his terrible injuries and great loss of blood, survived the grim trip back to Stockton Station and ultimately recovered from all of his injuries due to the tender nursing care of George Stockton 
and the others living at the station. And he went on to live a good long life for a dog. Now, needless to say, a part of George Stockton died that day with the burial of his firstborn son. But, as bad as it was for George, if he had had to have buried young Robert in a scalped and otherwise mutilated condition, perhaps chopped into pieces like they did the dead at the Blue Licks battle, it probably would have been more than he could bear. Jonathan's heroism had spared him that torment. Beecham Rhodes is another piece of good news. He eventually recovered from his wounds and rigors of his journey to get back to Stockton Station, but it took him 18 months before he could use that wounded leg well enough to accept the job of Frontier Militia Spy. And as for young Robert Stockton, Unlike so many who died at the hands of the Shawnees, being slowly tortured, his death was quick, with only a moment of suffering, and his last day on earth had been a great adventure that he had thoroughly enjoyed. And folks, when it came to violent death on the frontier, it didn't get much better than that. The unnamed tributary that he was killed and buried on was given the name Stockton Creek, which it still bears today. Now we're going to get into War on the River, the John May Flatboat Massacre. I've not spent a lot of time before on this aspect of the war between the hostiles and the pioneers. So I think you're going to find this very interesting uh, and some very good lessons that, that we can learn, we can take away from this story, and maybe it'll help keep us out of trouble as we go down life's road. So the death of Robert Stockton and the survival ordeal of, of, of Beecham Rhodes was only one example of hundreds of small conflicts and combats between the red men and the white Kentucky settlers. Hey, Dorian. Hey, Dorian. Yeah. Uh, we got a question from the audience here. Any okay. idea of the age of Samuel Reed or where he lived out the rest of his life? Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, it may be available. I just haven't researched it. There you go. Fair enough. You know, uh, when you take on a job like you know documenting all of these stories from the Kentucky frontier, do you ever see an Encyclopedia Britannica? Well, there's so much material in it, you know, and I can only get so much in a book, and I try to pack as much as I can, but. That's a very you know good question that was asked. Whoever asked it, uh, and it might it might uh, trail if you can follow that. Uh, I would suggest that you research the Draper manuscripts, the Draper manuscripts, which are the most uh, accurate and voluminous accounts of this period of history on the Kentucky frontier. Uh, Samuel Reed will be in them, I'm sure. Uh, 
And there might be a really interesting story connected with this man because he obviously, you know, was not just another settler. This guy, uh, boy, he had character. He had convictions. Uh, he was willing to, you know, risk his life to save a dying man if he could. I'd been proud to call him a friend, wouldn't you, Dennis? No, absolutely. Yep. So I'm sorry I can't help you specifically with that because, uh, you know, there's a lot of Samuel Reed, so to speak, that I saw and I thought, I'll bet there's a good story connected to that. And there's only so much time in a day and so many years in a life, you know, and you can only research so many people. Uh, so I would encourage you to, you know, if, if you're maybe you're related to some Reeds or something, uh, follow that trail. You know, that's what part of what this podcast is all about is to try to help our listeners become better researchers, uh, go beyond being a good researcher and become a history detective. Uh, because that will not only uh, lead you down trails to a lot of adventures and uh, reveal information to you you never imagined even existed, you know, but it'll also help you greatly in uh, your future metal detecting treasure hunting efforts because uh, you'll be able to go on a site and you'll be able to see things about it and see clues and things that everybody else missed. And what you just said is actually that that is the difference uh, many times in being successful at doing this hobby. When you can uh, see things that others have missed and, and know how to trace uh, the historical records the proper way and become that historical detective that you mentioned so often, man, that uh, that makes a difference. In fact, I think that's a pretty good challenge for the historical detectives that listen to us is follow up on Samuel Reed uh, from what Dory's been talking about. And it'd be kind of fun to see if maybe by next week somebody will uh, come up with some historical anecdotal notes about it. What do you say, Dory? Yeah. You for yeah, that? If there's, not, if there's, you know, if there's not enough for a book, if it's if it's uh, fairly condensed, you might even post it on all metal mode, so we can all read it. Anyway, all right, uh, all right. Let's get into war on the river here. Um, let's see. Let me get in my notes. See, see where I want to start. Uh, oh, yeah, I want to make a point here real quick. Um, as people multiplied, the deaths that occurred in isolated cabins and raids, you know, raids on isolated cabins, outlying stations, they had less and less of a of a pub public impact. You know, when there were 100, at one point there were only like 125 settlers left in Kentucky, uh, the others have been killed or they had, you know, fled back east. Uh, and they had to stand against over 3,000 Shawnees. Dennis, are you there? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, good. I thought I was disconnected. Bump my Ethernet connection. All right. You're good. Okay. So, uh, lost my place here. Where, where were we? 
Okay, so anyway, uh, the reporting of these tiny, small massacres, so to speak, uh, made the news, you know, were talked about maybe for a few days or a week. And then in all the hustle and bustle of a developing state, they were pretty much quickly forgotten. Um, now, in the minds of the survivors of the attacks and the near relatives and friends of the dead, they were still vividly bright and, and burning, so to speak. But the public kind of got jaded. And it got to be a routine. You know, well, you know, they burned another cabin up. Oh, did they? Oh, yeah, well, okay, you know, so on. Uh, so the sad truth is, another sad truth on the frontier, is that it was more often the losses of large number of horses to theft by silent Shawnee raids on the settlement corrals at night, and, uh, as well as the pastures, that evoked the most anger and desire for immediate retaliation in the frontier public at large now. So there had been a shift in public attitude, see. The people that were now uh, the new settlers were not pioneers. They were merely people arriving on the frontier and from back east, and they were more concerned about their personal property than the lives of those pioneers, if you please, out in the outlying areas whose lives are being lost. The only way that, you know, the, these deaths really made much of an impact, unless it was if it was somebody well-known, famous, like, you know, Robert Stockton, uh, because of George Stockton's uh, influence and, and fame in the area. Uh And there were expeditions mounted to try to bring the perpetrators uh, of these small small massacres, cabin massacres as I call them, uh, that tried to get, catch them before they got across the Ohio River to relative safety. And the, the forays were met with mixed success, uh, but the results most often best, were best described by the old expression, closing the barn door after the horse got out. And, you know, as a result uh, of the fact that these expeditions contained more and more men who were not hardened Indian fighters, uh, a considerable number of them became victims themselves because of the famous Shawnee, and I say famous, Shawnee proclivity to set ambushes. And so this often cost the pursuers even more casualties than, than those they were trying to avenge. Now there were a number of retreating hostiles that were caught up with and killed uh, trying to get too much loot back home, slow them down. Uh, and this was especially true when Simon Kenton and his Minutemen were the ones on their trail. But the numbers they killed did not 
did little to, to uh, hinder the Shawnee's ability to keep sending out raiding parties. And uh, just like their enemies, the friends and families of the Shawnee warriors who lost their lives to the white man's guns, buried and mourned their dead, and life and death went on. If I were to make an, an educated guess at the ratio of casualties between the red man and the white during these years of conflict, I'd have to say that it may have been as high as 10 to 1 in favor of the Shawnees. Ultimately, however, those scales would tip in favor of the settlers simply because no matter how many whites were killed in the frontier, replacements in the form of many new settlers were arriving daily. And the more the population on the frontier increased, the less impact the occasional atrocities committed by the hostiles had on them overall. Okay. And actually, I'm not going to go into it too far, but <laughs> little has changed in that regard for us to live our lives in this time of history in Kentucky. Um, uh, You know, we've had a lot of terrible school shootings, you know, and things, and, and a lot of people killed, and and uh, we know they happened, you know, but it's just not possible for us to grieve every one of those children that were killed or anywhere where people were killed in mass shootings. There were 3,000 people killed on 9-11. 3,000 people. And, you know... You can imagine how many families that devastated. And the families are still grieving. You see, but we don't have the ability to grieve uh, every day for those 3,000. We just don't have it. So there is uh, some truth in the old saying that life goes on and also the one that life is for the living you know bills bills still have to be paid it doesn't I mean if you lose a loved one uh, your creditors don't say oh you lost your wife or you lost your husband uh, tell you what we're just going to cancel the debts and we're going to provide our products and services to you free from now on that's not going to happen Bills still have to be paid. Electric company is not going to give you a break because you lost your mate or you lost a child. And we have other problems we have to deal with. So we we do grieve and we do miss people and miss our loved ones that are gone. But we've got to get on with life. That's just all there is to it. Uh, we didn't design it that way, but it is what we have to deal with. So anyway, the Shawnees were, were being seriously hurt in this ongoing war also. But the damage that was being done to them on the whole was not so much by the rifle balls of the settlers as it was the diminishing of game by the white man's unrestricted hunting of it and the onset of diseases that he often carried, such as smallpox and cholera. And another major factor in why the red men were winning the battles but losing the war 
was that the uh, infrequent raids into Ohio territory by large forces of the Kentucky militia destroyed their crops and brought famine, uh, serious famine, uh, to where they were actually starving at times in, in the hard winters. And we'll never know how many Shawnees died of starvation, but we do know uh, that it was in the hundreds and perhaps even in the thousands. But one thing for sure, the red men could not breed fast enough to replace their losses from all sources in this long-running war. Their numbers were dwindling, and that was a fact. And this, if you please, rang the death knell on their hopes of ultimately defeating the white settlers. The young among the hostiles typically continued to refuse to see the handwriting on the wall, as we say, and in their emotion-driven thinking were eager to continue the warfare against the whites at any cost and to die gloriously in battle if they must. And as I mentioned previously, the old and wise among the red men knew their, uh, knew their cause was already lost. But they also knew they could not convince the young of that fact, and so the war went on. And it's changing only in character to adapt to the evolving conditions on the spanning frontier. Okay. Let's see. Trying to find a place in my notes I don't want to jump to here. Just a moment. While you're there, Jim Smith also uh, made another comment. He asked about Samuel Reed because Dorian had mentioned a stot in the past in a discussion of Bryan's station. The Stotts and Reed both settled north of Lexington and moved on to Jennings County, Indiana. I'll have to do a little digging now. There you go, Julian, do that. Uh, also asked for a teaser on Tennessee Regiment in his new article. Was it the 20th at Perryville? Is that the 20th? Mm-hmm. Tennessee Regiment, I guess he's talking about. Was it the 20th no, at wait, Perryville? No, I wrote about the 16th Tennessee. There you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's quite a story. It, uh, uh, they all became heroes because their colonel misunderstood his orders. So it's quite a story. Uh if you you know have the slightest interest in the Civil War, you, I think you really enjoy that story. It's from my book on Perryville. Anyway, um, we're ready to tackle war on the river here in the time we got left. Um, there was one type of new arrival on the frontier that the Shawnees could continually count on to underestimate their enemy and ever prove gullible to devastating ambush and attack. One type of new arrival. In addition to the ease 
with which these would-be settlers could be slaughtered, the few that the Indians allowed to survive these attacks could then be used to lure others of this class of settler to their death also. So we're talking about the settlers who came down the Ohio River on the various flatboats, broadhorns, I think it was another type of boat, mostly flatboats. And uh, I put a really nice picture of the Ohio River on picture number 18. Um, outside of the fact that the river is deeper than it used to be because of the dams, this is really almost an unspoiled scene of what it would have looked like back then. Uh, it looks so beautiful. It looks so inviting. But it was so deadly. And it threw the new arrivals off guard as we're going to see. So many of them uh, had never actually set foot on Kentucky land before. And they were going to meet their extremely violent demise at the hands of enemies most had never before encountered. They didn't have the hatred and the caution and the understanding of the ruthlessness of their adversaries. They were all filled with emotional thoughts of claiming land, you know, rich land and becoming financially successful. And that pushed out uh, most of the caution from their minds. And the reason that most of them died before they ever set foot on Kentucky land was that they were on the Ohio River in boats when they were attacked. They had come down, uh, uh, favorite launching point was Pittsburgh. Uh, they would have a flat boat built there. And I believe a complete boat could be built for $200 at that time. Uh, and they just couldn't imagine it really being uh, as bad as it was. I'm sure some of them were actually hoping to see some real Indians on their trip. But when they saw them, they would die wishing that they never had, of course. So, in uh, volume number one of my, my book, Kentucky in the Early Years, I pointed out that at the height of the Indian troubles, it was said that as many, seven, as, many as 70 bloated bodies of murdered would-be settlers a day could be counted floating down the river during the height of the war. And this effect alone tells you how effective the Shawnee attacks on the new would-be settlers' boats were. Now, if you look at picture number... Come on up there. There you go. Picture number 19. As you can see by the caption on the picture, tying up a flat boat to either bank on the Ohio cost many a would-be Kentucky settler, their scalps, and their lives. It was a very, very foolish thing to do, to have a boat tied up like this. Of course, this is a modern one here. 
reproduction. And if you did tie it up, uh, you look at picture number 20, this is what was going to happen to you, almost certainly. Now, let's see. The relatively few bodies of all these killed that were recovered lie in un unmarked graves up and down the riverbank. Some of them probably washed out, long gone. Uh, most of the bodies, fr quite frankly, were devoured by the river scavengers like turtles and catfish. Let's see here. I can tell you this, anytime you travel the Ohio River by boat or in a vehicle along any of the roads that parallel it, you are passing many unknown would-be settlers, unmarked and lonely graves. I should say many unknown murdered settlers, unmarked and lonely graves. Because a lot of times by the time the bodies were found, there was no identification, no way to know who, even who they were or where exactly they, you know, where their homes had been. So their families couldn't even be notified. So for many of these victims, there were no survivors at all of their party uh, to leave us a history of how and where exactly the attack on their boat happened and the name, who the names, uh, what the names of the victims were. Uh, their relatives back east never knew their fate for certain, only that they never arrived at their destination were never heard from again. One such attack involved a notable man on the Kentucky frontier, one famous attack, named John May. Now, John had arrived in Limestone from Virginia as a surveyor of some reputation, and he quickly claimed or purchased thousands of acres of land and eventually would be the source of the new name for Limestone of Maysville. So Maysville is named after John May. And he also gave his name to the little communities uh, south of Maysville about, oh, how far is it? Um, 20 miles? Maybe not that far. 10 miles? Uh, 10, 15 miles. Mays Lick. Mays Lick. Remember, a lick was a uh, creek that had a place where the deer could come and lick salt. Had salt deposits coming out of the bank somewhere. Anyway, prior to the event about to be described, John May had once been captured by the Shawnees, and they released him. But he was told that if he ever came near Shawnee land again, meaning Ohio, he would be killed. And that proved to be prophetic. And it didn't happen very long after his first release, or his only release, I should say. So here's the story of the John May Flatboat Massacre. It was February 1790, and, and pioneer surveyor John May had just finished up a successful trip back to Virginia from the Kentucky frontier 
to conduct several matters of business. Those completed, he purposed to return to the frontier to do more survey work. At Kelly's Landing on the Kanawha River, he bought a flatboat for the remainder of the trip home to Limestone. May had two traveling companions who began the trip with him. The first was John Gladstone, his clerk, who was about 20 years of age, and a man listed only as a Virginia gentleman by the name of Jacob Skiles, of whom we don't, we don't know anything else about him. He just doesn't show up in the records. So history records that they had a lot of personal belongings with them and that they also carried a substantial shipment of dry goods stacked on the deck of the boat. There were various items in demand. These were various items in demand in the frontier settlements, and they were eventually bound for sale in the ever-growing number of storefront merchants in Lexington, Kentucky. So in addition to his success as a surveyor, May was an astute enough businessman to seize the opportunity to profit in other areas when opportunities present themselves, thus the dry goods filling the deck space of his boat. Now, when they reached the Ohio River at Point Pleasant, near Gallipolis, John May took advantage of the additional business opportunity to take on three paying customers, also wishing to go to Limestone. One is recorded to have been a frontiersman, mentioned only by the name of Flynn, F-L-I-N-N, while the other two were sisters by the last name of Fleming. And I have not yet discovered if they were any relation to John Fleming, that we talked about previously. But if this little party had had any inkling of what lay ahead for them on the trip, they would have fled from May and his flat boat as fast as their legs could have carried them. And May himself would have probably been right on their heels. The historical records find them near the mouth of the Scioto River, which is just west of present-day downtown Portsmouth, Ohio. At daybreak on the 20th of March, from this point on to Limestone Landing, they would be trans transversing or traversing rather a most dangerous part of the river in terms of the threat of sudden attack by the Shawnees and Wyandots. That's funny because that's you know that I'm near. Uh, uh, travel uh, most of that river in a boat. Um, you know, and without without study, you would not know all of the history where you, you know, where you were and you just say, well, this is a beautiful river and look at look at this and look at that and look at the eagles over here and, and there are uh, bald eagles on let's see they were coming in the, uh, under the threat of attack as they traversed this part of the river by both the Shawnees and the Wyandots the Wyandots, uh, if you recall, were in Blue Licks and they helped in the attack on the Kentucky militia. Anyway, um, 
as there was a large fire down in high shore and they received warning. Now listen to this. They had received warning of war party activity along that stretch of the river. And so they exercised proper caution by keeping their boat in the very center of the river. <coughs> which was the safest place and put them at the longest rifle range from both sides. Let's see. It also gave them maximum time to spot any war canoes leaving either shore to attack them and they could prepare to defend themselves. So John... May was well aware that he dare not be captured alive as a variety so one is certainly tempted to conclude that his business interest in the financial prosperity they were generating had overridden what should have been May's fear to even be on that stretch of river. Suddenly they observed two white men running down the shoreline on the Ohio side of the river. The Shawnee side, if you please. The two screamed at the boat party to save them from a terrible fate. They claimed to be from Kentucky's bottom. Uh, oh, Kennedy's bottom, excuse me, Kentucky. Where they had been captured by the hostiles in a surprise raid, and they just escaped from them that day. Hey, Dorian. Dorian. Hello, come in. Their names were all right, y'all hang yes. on. We're going. Yeah, you're. You're. It's kind of like this. So we're going to reset right quick. Hang tight. Be right back. Now, y'all hang tight. We'll call back Dorian one more time. Thank you, Bill, for letting me know that. I was really kind of getting amused by his his voice, though. Probably the ADD. Okay. All right. Better, much better, much better. And if uh, anybody tells you I was making fun of you doing that, don't you believe them? Huh? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. All right. All right. Let's get let's get back into the the John May story here. Let me find my place. Y'all are welcome, by the way. Hero at your service. It could be his regulator, too. What are we talking about? Your voice was speeding up and then slowing down, and I was uh, gently amused by it, but somebody had to call it to my attention to uh, call you back, so I said, okay, reset. Okay. Okay. It was good for me. Go ahead. Okay, let's see. Uh, hang on a minute. Uh, okay, so 
they saw these two guys running down the shore uh, uh, begging the boat party to save them from a terrible fate. Well, as the old saying goes, this was not John May's first rodeo. You know, he wasn't a greenhorn just arrived on the frontier. And he knew, he well knew, that one of the favorite tactics of the hostiles in the war on the river was to force white captives to do exactly what these men were doing to lure unsuspecting boats closer to shore where they could be easily and successfully attacked. And he had already seen evidence of war parties in this area of the river. How much warning do you need to exercise caution? Well, May was at the rudder of the boat wearing pajamas and a nightcap. He kept, and he kept the boat in the middle of the river suspecting a trap. Now, while this caution was good, it wasn't enough. He should have been fully dressed with a loaded flintlock within immediate reach. As the boat drifted on downstream, <clears throat> past the men, their cries for help became more desperate and unbearable to the others on the boat. Flynn and the two sisters implored John May to pull in close to the Ohio shore just long enough for Flynn to help the two desperate escapees onto the boat. May, against what surely had to be his better judgment, agreed to do so. And this was about to prove to be the worst mistake of his entire life. He knew that when white men who were ordered to lure boats to shore by their hostile captors sounded so desperate and convincing that it was because they were motivated to be that way. Because, you see, they were told that a slow death by horrible tortures awaited them if the boat failed to respond to their attempts to lure to shore. So they were really motivated uh, in their acting to try to deceive the boat crews. It'd be a bad situation to be in to lure people to their death to save yourself. But that's why that, that was the reality on the war on the river. Okay, so usually they were forced to watch and listen to su uh, such a death administered to one of their fellow captives to make it absolutely clear what the price of failure to betray their fellow white men would be before they were taken to the river shore. Nonetheless, May yielded to his sister's the sisters and Flynn's impassioned pleas, and he guided the boat close to the Ohio shore. Flynn jumped off to assist the two escaped prisoners, only to immediately find himself confronting several fierce-looking Shawnee warriors in full war paint who stepped from concealment of the foliage growing along the riverbank. Now, he had no chance to mount a defense or, or return to the boat before being captured. The boat was then raked with musket fire from additional hostiles hiding at a very close range. May tried desperately to steer the boat back out into the center of the river, but the musket fire was so intense that he had to drop down behind the low wooden wall surrounding the edge of the flat boat and take cover. In the meantime, hang on a moment. 
I've got a, a Skype window that's interfering with my ability to see my computer notes here. There we go. Got it out of the way. In the meantime, one of the Fleming sisters was fatally shot, and she fell dead, and Jacob Skiles took a ball to the shoulder. The hostiles were shooting the horses on the boat, and they were going wild and in danger of trampling the remaining survivors to death. John May now made his second fatal mistake in a row, a circumstance for which the frontier was rarely forgiving. Concluding escape was hopeless, May waved his nightcap above his head, shouting, Surrender! Surrender! And what could have possibly motivated him to do this with the tortures that would have awaited him after capture? I guess it'll never be understood. Reason demands that the last thing in the world he should have wanted was to be captured alive. I know that would have been the case with me. As it turns out, you might say that John May won the lottery that day. He had done very foolishly putting his own life and the lives of his passengers in jeopardy in his boat. But he did not get his wish to remain alive to be captured. What he got for his effort was a big musket ball right in the center of his forehead, killing him instantly. And surely, whether he realized it or not, this was a great mercy when you consider what would lay it, have lain ahead for him if captured. So John May, experienced Kentucky frontiersman and a man who had cheated death once already at the hands of the hostile red men, he left behind his name in the towns of Maysville, Kentucky, and Mayslip, Mayslick, excuse me, and his scalp in the hands of his enemies. Now, the band of attacking hostiles, though mainly Shawnee, also includes some Wyandots, some Delawares, and some Cherokees. They boarded the boat, they scalped the dead, and then they plundered its cargo. They divided up both their prisoners and the captured supplies and either either sunk or set the flatboat on fire as they prepared for further attacks on more boats coming down the river. So there's more to the story, especially regarding the two escaped prisoners who had lured the, uh, the uh, lured the May Party to the Ohio shore. And we will cover that in the very next part of Heroes and Hostiles, Part 7, uh, good Lord willing, next Tuesday night. So thanks to all that joined us tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this and learned from it. Uh, it's some pretty amazing history of our country, and uh, you never saw this on Walt Disney. So, uh, folks, we hope to see you back here same time next week on the Tuesday night all Metal Mode Podcast. All right. Brother, you once again, you've, you've done an incredible job. Thank you for all the research you do, and uh, 
thank you guys out there for listening to us and uh sometimes Dorian gets a little bit slurred a little bit slow in his speech but he can't help it it's a speaker platform wired or not but uh anyway <coughs> he's much more interesting in person but thank you all again for listening tonight we'll see you guys next week same time same bat channel had to say that i don't know why yeah. <clears throat> takes me back a few years anyway say good night brother good night everybody good night my friends out there we'll see you down the road we're out